Well, let's get into it. Zechariah chapter four is where we are. Thanks, buddy. Um, we've been going through the visions of Zechariah. We've been seeing these visions, eight in number, some say 10. I told you last week a little bit why I believe more like eight, which is what most, most people say, but there's a few that kind of break them up a little differently and that's okay. But, um, but the first four that we've covered so far, remember was the writer and the myrtle trees. Uh, uh, and we found that that was the Lord speaking of how he was gonna come to the rescue for Israel. Even though the other nations were prospering, he would be the one to come and save Israel out of their trouble. Uh, the second vision was the four horns, the horns of power. Uh, if you remember the, the carpenters or the, those that would actually demo guys, the demo, demolition derby would go with those, uh, those four horns, if you recall, and destroy those. And then the measuring line was vision three and God's courtroom was vision four. And that's what brought us all the way up to chapter uh, four now where we get into the fifth vision, and we're gonna call this vision the olive trees and the candlestick. And again, you know, these are strange visions, and they would have been strange even to Zechariah, and it would have been strange to the people of Israel. But uh, the, the cool part of these visions is they come with sort of that pattern that we talked about um, that's kind of important. Remember, we talked about how these visions were generally kind of divided into different uh, sections of each vision. And we talked about there was preparation for the vision, kind of the setup. And then we saw the presentation of the vision. And then there was always confusion or a question raised in the middle of the vision. What's this all about? What does this mean? And all that stuff. And then the interpretation or the explanation of the vision. So if you, if you remember, we've gone kind of through that each of the last three Wednesdays uh, to make sure that we kind of see that pattern. Um, each vision has a similar, uh, similar pattern. Um, and by the way, um, in uh, vision five, we're gonna start with this first section, the preparation, and, and that starts really with verse one. Let's take a look. It's here, chapter four, verse one, vision five. It says, and the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. So this is the scene. He he's, he's, you know, finds himself asleep and suddenly he's awake. Do you ever get that weird wake-up call where you're kind of like in the middle of a good sleep and then you're like, what's going on? Uh, you can almost picture poor Zachariah finally getting some sleep after all these weird dreams. He's got another one, uh, you know, and this is the, not the spirit of Christmas past or anything like that. It's, it's, it's almost like that's happening, you know, to Zachariah as he's going through the night, he's getting these visions all in, in one night. Um, and one of the things that we we've talked about in this is, um, you know, uh, this idea of the vision or a dream. Which one is it? A dream tends to be kind of thought of as when you're sleeping. A vision, you can be wide awake and have sort of a vision. Um, but as it turns out, the Lord uses dreams and visions in the Bible uh, to speak to his people. And then we asked that question last week and the week before, you know, does the Lord still speak through visions? And I think we, we have to understand, yes, he still speaks through dreams and visions. Um, and even in the last days, like Joel the prophet, if you were with us when we were going through the book of Joel, he reminded us that, you know, it'll come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon flesh, all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Um, and, um, and like I said last time, you gotta remember to be careful to, um, to, to uh, discern, have a discerning spirit 
about dreams and visions. Um, I worry when we start talking about dreams and visions, I'm gonna have people come up, Pastor Brett, I had a vision, and they get that kind of the crazy eyes. Uh, then I know, I don't know, I'm not sure if this is from the Lord, the crazy eyes thing. Uh, but sometimes I've had people come up and share dreams and visions, and you have to kind of go, man, I wonder if this is really of the Lord. Question, um, quiz time, how do you discern if a dream is from the Lord or a vision? Right, I heard you guys, some of you guys say, you gotta make sure it, it fits with the Bible. If it goes outside of the Bible or if it doesn't, it doesn't align with the Bible, uh, you know, if somebody came up and said, Brad, I have a vision that you're supposed to go rob a bank. Um, I can know pretty certainly that that's probably not of the Lord because, uh, because that's not something thou shalt not steal is a very clear uh, indication. I, I'm being ridiculous, but, but that's the same kind of thing you gotta be careful about. What's another indicator that the dream is of the Lord? I'm happy you guys got the Bible one because that, that's the big one. Um, what's another one? Confirmation, somebody said it right there, yeah. So um, that, that other Christians will kind of say, you know what, I, that, that sounds right to me and, it's, and, and there's a sense. Um, and by, by the way, one of the things the spirit will do is some people even have a gift of this kind of this discerning of spirits and discerning where things came from. Uh, I think there's some people that are really blessed with that. And, and, and that's the person you wanna run the, the dream by or the vision by, is this, is this, was this of the Lord? And, and, um, and be careful if somebody says, absolutely. I'm always a little nervous about that too. Uh, but if they say this could be, it's possible. Um, I'll give you one more uh, that uh, might, might not need to be said, but I think it kind of does. And that is if the dream comes to pass, that was probably from the Lord. Uh, like if it really did come to pass as the Lord laid it out a vision or dream. Um, and by the way, that was, a, that was the way they discerned the prophets in the Old Testament. If you were a prophet of the Old Testament and you said thus and thus was gonna happen, if it didn't happen, what happened to that prophet? They would take him outside and stone him to death uh, if he was wrong. So you better get your prophecies right if you're an Old Testament prophet. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because a lot of them got it right and they still wanted to stone him to death. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. Um, but the idea is to be careful to discern, is this of the Lord? And you'll know it's from the Lord if it actually happens. Um, and, and one of the things you definitely don't wanna do is come up with some new doctrine or new uh, biblical thought or understanding from a dream or vision. Uh, that, that's always a bad plan. We have everything we need in the Bible to tell us what we believe and, and what our doctrines are. You never get doctrine from a dream. Does that make sense? I uh, hope we know that. Um, like the Mormons, they got a doctrine from vision uh, or dream. Uh, Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni and uh, the whole thing, that was just, um, you know, even Galatians says, if we are an angel from heaven comes and gives you that which we, other than which we have preached, let that angel be a curse. So we gotta be careful with dreams, visions, stuff like that, of course. Um, so all that say, those are some of the, the kind of the rules around dream, but, but the, the, the preparation in this dream, uh, you know, as it turns out, is that he needs to wake up. Now it makes you wonder, does he wake up out of sleep just you know, metaphorically or is, it, is there kind of an interpretation there? Um, one of the things the Bible tells you and me in our days that we're to wake up. Uh, I'm reminded of Romans 13, uh, verse 11, where it says this, and that knowing the time now, it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us have cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife or envying, 
but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Wake up, Paul says, it's time, it's high time to wake up out of sleep. And I worry that there, there's a, a part of the church today that if we're not careful, we've been lulled into this sleepy little situation where the church is kind of doing exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to do. You know, we talk about being woke. The Bible says wake up, but as it turns out, if the church is going woke, then they're doing exactly the opposite of this, waking up. Because um, the, 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 the word tells us what to do. Um, cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, chambering and wantonness, strife or envy, um, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the world today is woke, um, but the true version of wokeness, if you would, according to Romans 13, 11, is to put off dark things and to put away sinful stuff, not indulge in it, rioting, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, which is, by the way, sexual immorality. Um, it's sad to see how uh, so much of our society has been uh, so perverted in sexuality that it has led to all kinds of crazy things, including abortion and uh, transgenderism and the acceptance of all the LGBTQ things that go against the word of God. And, um, and so some of the church, the so-called woke church, we have to be careful about that because, um, uh, and, and by the way, the, the definition of woke varies. Be careful about calling people woke when they may not be woke, they might just be sinners or they might be, there's actually definitions of these things. So we have to be careful. But the whole thing is, you know, d does, does your worldview allow you to put on Jesus Christ um, uh, to not make provision to fulfill the lusts of the flesh? Or does your, does your worldview um, kind of make you a little nervous to put on Jesus and you are fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, of, of greed, envy, um, you know, hatred and anger and stuff like that. We have to be really careful about that. Um, I love this idea of putting on Jesus Christ. That's something you and I are all called to do. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, sometimes Christians are accused of being fake, phonies. And I understand that. There's a real version of that that is ugly and bad, of course. But at the same time, I sort of see this put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ means I'm supposed to fake my way through it. For me to be myself, you don't wanna see that. Um, but for me to put on Jesus Christ, that's a very different Brett than the one that is right there uh, at the root of me. And for me to be like Jesus, I'm gonna have to be a serious actor. Uh, you might even say a put on. <laughs> have you ever been accused of being a put on? You're, you Christians are just a bunch of put ons, you know, fake, uh, you know, or this or that. But you know what? It, it's gotta be a little bit of a put on because to put E on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a very different you. You gotta put away your, your uh, bad attitude and you gotta put away the things you're, that make you angry or irritable or any of those things. You gotta put all that away and put on Jesus. And as Jesus, his words were just seasoned with grace. His, his, his um, heart was of great compassion. He never got wrongly angry. He was righteous anger at the turning of the tables, but man, he, Jesus was so perfect in every way that for me to put on Jesus Christ, whew, that's a tall order. Now, by the way, I think the longer you do this though, the more it becomes who you are. It's like uh, the more you practice being like Jesus, the more you really become like Jesus. And I think that's something we all should really want. That's what all of us should want, is to be more like Christ and put on Jesus Christ uh, to not fulfill the provision, the lust of the flesh. So that's the idea of, of this. Um, it's time to wake up, time to put off the night clothes, 
the night is far spent, you know, the PJs gotta go and dress up in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that imagery of Romans. That's kind of what's happening here with Zachariah. Time to wake up, Zachariah. Um, and that's sort of the preparation for this, this vision. But vision number five, we also see not only preparation, but we also see this idea of the presentation and that's verses two and three. Let's take a look. Um, after he wakes out of sleep, verse two, it says, um, and he said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. Okay, so we have the presentation of what he sees. Interesting, he sees something that at first is kind of a normal thing. Um, uh, he sees what you and I might call the, the lampstand of the temple. Uh, you might even call it a menorah. Um, uh, do you know the difference between a menorah and the Hanukkah? Or uh, what's the difference between those? Well, remember the festival of lights, uh, the, the celebration of the Jews around our Christmas time, the Jews have Hanukkah. And we've gone over that story and what that means. And, and it's a, a celebration Jesus actually celebrated with the Jews. Um, it was from that 170 BC era, you know, the Maccabean revolt when they lit the candlesticks there in the temple, um, the lampstand, and it, they just kept burning even though they ran out of oil. That, that's the Hanukkah. But the Hanukkah, you'll see in, in Jerusalem, um, you know, the, the, the menorah is the, the seven branches, whereas the Hanukkah is the nine. And that's what, if you wanna not just be a tourist in Jerusalem and you're buying, because you can buy all these things, you can buy, but the, the nine one is definitely more of a Christmas time, Hanukkah sort of t uh, thing you find in Jerusalem. But the menorah is the one of the temple. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, the menorah, um, the, it speaks of, of Jesus and the church. Um, and that's kind of an important thing for you to know if you're a Bible student. Um, you know, the, 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 the candlestick, you know, when we read the word candlestick in the Bible, some of you are picturing, you know, wedding taper candles, um, but that's not what's happening here. Um, what, what Zachariah sees is exactly the, the menorah um, because he even explains it. He says, he, um, you know, he saw a candlestick, all of gold, which that's what um, the candlestick in the tabernacle and the temple was made of all pure gold. Um, and so he sees that. Uh, and with it, a bowl on the top of it. Now you might say, well, I don't know about the bowl on top. Well, we've always pictured each candlestick having like a candle on top, but you have to understand the bowl on the top was actually a, a lamp. Um, they, put the, the, they put one of these little lamps at the top of each little branch. So the branch had a little platform and then you'd put a bowl like this, a lamp uh, with oil in it and the, the little oil and the wick and all that stuff. And by the way, these little lamps, these um, oil lamps, you can find these. Like you, you can actually find, it's, it's rare today to find a, a complete version of this, but there's places in Israel you can go and just kick the dirt around and you'll find pieces of one of these from the first century. Um, it's kind of amazing. Like it's like garbage laying around. Uh, we would call it in Oregon, like archeological digs. Uh, but you know, but for them, they've got so much archeological stuff there in, in Israel. But in the Kidron Valley, they, you don't do it as much anymore, but you used to be able to walk through the Kidron Valley. That's between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. 
and all the junk they'd throw down in that valley. Like that's where all the stuff ended up going for construction things and stuff. And the dirt there, literally you could just kick the dirt around and find ancient lamps like this. Um, not, not the complete ones, but broken pieces. Now, if you go into Jerusalem, be careful because they'll uh, try to sell you lamps and say, this is a lamp from the time of Christ. And the, the problem is it may or may not be. Like, you don't really know. Uh, I think there's a lot of shenaniganry going on there in Jerusalem uh, in some of those shops. Uh, there are shops that are a little more, usually you can tell by the price and, and, and they come with some kind of a certification uh, and depends on who's certifying it. You can, if you want to, buy a complete lamp from the first century of Jesus, but you'll probably pay, pay well over, uh, you know, a couple thousand bucks uh, for a lamp like that from the first century. But, um, but they, there, there are those lamps around. Um, now you say, Brett, why are you telling us about the lamp? Well, this is what he sees. He sees the this, this menorah with the, the, the single middle branch and then the, the three branches on each side, left and right, which is a total of seven. And that's an interesting thing. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion and perfection. And the imagery here um, is that of Jesus Christ. It's, it, the lampstand is a beautiful picture of Christ and his church in the Old Testament. Um, and you should know that. Uh, the center post is, is sort of a representation of Jesus. And then the, the branches are, are the, the church. That's, that's us coming out from Christ. Jesus, you know, he, he spoke about this stuff. In John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said this. He said, you are the light of the world. So which one is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or are we the light of the world? The answer, yes. Yeah, but he's the source. He's the source of light where it first starts. It's one of the things I love about, you know, um, uh, uh, the candlelight service on Christmas Eve. You know, it starts with one little flame and then we pass it around. And that flame goes out through the whole congregation and we stand there and the whole room lights up, you know, even though the lights are off. And it's just kind of this cool thing of what happens. Christ comes to us and lights our light up. And then we get to be lights in this world. And so he says, neither do, a men, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And give it, the candlestick speaks of the church, by the way. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Uh, not only do we see this imagery, you know, with Jesus talking about he's the light of the world and then you are the lights of the world, but then we see sort of the, 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 the exclamation point there in the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse 20. Uh, we see that the seven churches, and, and it says of those seven churches of Asia Minor, a major, major part of the Bible talking to the church from Christ. Um, it's, it's chapter one, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Um, the seven stars are the angels and the seven of the seven churches or messengers. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Uh, interesting. So the, the, the early church would have seen a menorah here. Christ is the center. Uh, and then you have the seven church, seven lights. And Jesus says, I'm in the midst of the church. And it's, it's such a really a cool imagery of the Bible. But one of the things about the, the, remember what Jesus was constantly saying to the seven churches, be careful lest I snuff out your candle. Like you're gonna lose your light if you're not careful. And that's what we have to really be careful of as the church of Jesus Christ. We don't wanna do stuff that makes Jesus say, I'm gonna remove your candle from out of this place. 
And I think we've seen that happen. In fact, I'm brokenhearted at right now and I see how many churches, because of decisions that they made about their doctrine, even in the last two years, I don't know what it is in the last two years, but sadly a bunch of churches went haywire. And it's just heartbreaking to me to see that. Um, and and, and uh, I'm not surprised that it seems, and, and I say this not pridefully at all, uh, because the Lord is blessing Athe Greek, um, and, and I referred to last Sunday uh, in our message about how he's gracious and he uses the weak and the foolish. That's what Athe Greek, we don't, we're not qualified, we're not better than anybody, um, but, but here's the problem. Once we start doing stuff where Jesus would say, I have this against you, my church, I will remove your candlestick. That's what he said to several of the churches in the book of Revelation. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, happening uh, as we speak. And it's just heartbreaking where the candles are being removed. Um, so that's the book of Revelation that talks about that. Jesus also gave the imagery of the vine and the branches. I am the vine, my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it uh, that it may bring forth more fruit. So the idea of this uh, branch and, and, and the, the candlestick of the tabernacle um, also had, it was made of gold, but it also had fruit on it. It was, it was a picture of branches, like a fruit tree almost. Uh, that's the idea. Now, some of the other symbology of this whole thing is the oil itself. We see uh, the lamps that have the oil in them. Where, where does that oil come from? Well, that's what the Zachariah's vision starts getting a little interesting. I mean, so far he would have just said, mm, a menorah, whatever. He's seen that a million times. He was the high priest, pardon me. Joshua was the high priest. He was the one building the temple. So they, they were familiar with this idea of the menorah or the candlestick and the symbology of the oil. But, but, but he also saw something that was kind of unique and we'll get into that in a second. But, but before we leave the idea of the oil, remember oil in the Bible is a picture of what? Anybody? The Holy Spirit, right. Um, uh, in Zechariah's time, um, this, this, um, this would have been a hard thing, I think, for him to understand this, the imagery that he's about to see, but for us, it makes perfect sense, and I'll show you why. Um, so um, so we, we've seen, we got the oil, we got the candlestick, um, and thus far, we, we've been given the preparation of this vision, wake up. We've seen the presentation, candlestick, oil, and then these two olive trees with these little pipes going into the candles, candle, the lamps, What's those pipes holding? Well, um, the oil. Uh, and it seems, uh, it seems like, what, what's, what's these pipes all about? Well, that's where we, we have the confusion. That's the confusion section. Of, and it looks like all the visions that Zachariah has. Then he has a question and he's kind of wondering what, what in the world's going on. So it says in verse four, so I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. It's almost like the angel's like, are you kidding? You should know this. Uh, now, why should, you know, um, why should Zechariah know this? Uh, well, remember, Zechariah was a priest. Um, and so was Joshua, the, the guy we talked about in uh, chapter three. Zerubbabel would be the builder, and he's gonna be brought up here in a few minutes. But, um, but this, is, this is why I think the angel's kind of like, what? You're, you're like a uh, priest, and you don't even understand this? Uh, but that's okay. He's going to tell him. But that's, you know, do you ever feel like that with Bible passages? You read the Bible and you read something and you kind of go, man, I don't know what that means. And you almost hear an angel going, you don't understand what that means? Come on. Uh, but it's okay. Don't worry. Um, I love the Bible for uh, you and I have a lifetime to study the scriptures. 
Um, don't ever feel bummed if you don't understand a section of scripture. Um, I actually have seen this be a detriment to people's faith and their walk. There's some people, and, and all of you are wired differently, but some of you are wired in a way that unless you can figure it out right out of the gate, you're one of those people that you tend to bail when you can't just figure it out immediately. And that's something you have to be really careful with the Bible because you will never figure out the whole Bible. You can spend your whole life. There's been brainiac scholars who've uh, studied the Bible their whole life. There's one guy who studied Matthew chapter one his whole life. And um, you say, well, who would do that? It's just a genealogy, remember? I told you about this guy, Dr. Ivan Panin. And he studied this chapter his whole life and he was a mathematician. And what he found is everything in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus of that particular one is a multiple of seven, everything. How many Greek words are used? How many Greek vowels are used? How many uh, times women are mentioned? How many times there are kings? How many times there are slaves? Like everything is a multiple of seven, which, which you gotta give the guy credit. That's finding out something pretty incredible. But who's got the attention span to study that your whole life? Uh, Dr. Ivan Panin was that guy. Uh, back in the 1800s, I believe, is when he did that. But um, that's, that's where you see the fingerprints of God on the Bible, by the way. No, no human could write a genealogy that is real and then also have everything work out to be a multiple of seven. If, if you're interested, look it up. For you math people, I don't even know what we're talking about here, but when we're talking about multiples of seven and stuff, I know enough to be dangerous. But, um, but, uh, but Ivan Benin did an amazing work. And it's, it's, it's a miraculous thing about a genealogy in, in the Bible. Um, but, but if you're one of those people that you kind of read something, well, I don't understand that, so I, I'm gonna bail, um, don't do that. What happens with the Bible is you read uh, the scriptures and then as the years go by, something you read five years ago will connect with something you're reading today. And you'll start to see the dots connected. You know, it's, it's one of those wonderful, I've heard someone call it uh, time bombs, little biblical time bombs going off. As you read the Bible, you're like, okay, read, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, oh, I get it. And you, and you totally see something that you read before and you see how it connects. And then those two things that have connected in your mind now, a few years later, you might be reading something somewhere else, well, boom, Wow, and that connects to those and those. And pretty soon all the connect, the, the more you start seeing the dots connected, the more miraculous you realize the Bible really is. But if you're one who's very quickly discouraged, well, I don't understand this scripture, um, then, um, then just chill, just, just wait. You don't have to figure everything out. Um, in fact, that's one of Aether Creek's kind of distinctives of our church is we, we don't like to get tangled up in, in difficult Bible passages. Like if there's something we don't understand, we're just gonna wait, pray about it, study, learn, but we're not gonna hang it up. We're not gonna get all frustrated and uh, you know, get, uh, well, I don't understand it, so it must not be true or must not, must not be worth studying. That's the wrong conclusion. Be careful on that one. So I feel that some of us, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize how much there's still more to learn. You know, so I, I would just give you that word, don't give up, keep studying, and the word will continue to come to life the further you go. Well, that's, that's poor Zacharias. Like, I have no idea what this is all about, this lampstand with these olive trees, with these pipes and all this stuff. Um, and so that brings us then to the interpretation. After the confusion, just like the pattern of all these visions, then, then we get the interpretation of this vision. And we see that in verse six. Um, then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. 
Um, we looked at this on Sunday and we talked about Zerubbabel and we talked about how he was the one who was waited, he'd waited 16 years and he delayed building the temple. And this is Zechariah along with Haggai, contemporaries, saying, Zechariah, or Zerubbabel, time to get going, time to build the temple again. And so, um, you know, if you remember the whole uh, set of circumstances, 586 BC was when Nebuchadnezzar uh, last finally crushed Jerusalem. And it was around 520 BC, Joshua and Zerubbabel, and these guys start to uh, rebuild the temple, mixed reactions. Uh, But the building stops for 16 years, and that's where Haggai and Zechariah said, you guys gotta get back to work get back to doing the work. So, so the way he's doing this is saying, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Now you might say, well, what does the spirit have to do with this vision? Like he gives them this answer that's got the menorah and the oil and the olive trees, but we gotta remember it's the power is of the spirit. That's what we looked at on Sunday. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So what's the picture about? Well, the power of the lampstand, this one is unique. There's this vision of this lampstand, it's a perpetually burning uh, lampstand that never runs out of fuel. That's the idea. Wouldn't you like to have a a vehicle like that? Uh, Maybe we should invent like some trees, olive trees that are growing on the side of your car and then then some tubes going down into the motor and burns olive oil uh, as you're driving down. (laughs) That's that's an idea for somebody. Uh, But uh, (laughs) you give Musk a run for the money there with your olive tree car. <laughs> but uh, but that's the idea in, in this vision is the olive tree is producing instead of normally you'd crush the olives and get the oil out of the olive uh, you know olive tree but um, but it's almost like this has pipes in it uh, that are that are feeding the lamps and it's just kind of a perpetually powered thing uh, the, the idea is it's not by might of humans nor by power of humans but by my spirit and so he says in verse seven. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me to you. Interesting here, the explanation, just like the endless supply of oil, the Holy Spirit, uh, to the lamps, the Lord is gonna give Zerubbabel the power, an uh, unending supply of of energy and power to finish uh, the building of the temple. And and you might hear Zerubbabel say, well, that's a mountain that's too big to to be removed, you know? Who can build the temple in these days? But then the Lord says, who art thou, O mountain? And others, you know, um, mountain who? Whatever, it's gonna be a plain. In other words, when you say remove this mountain, that's what the power of the Holy Spirit can do. It can move even a mountain. Um, and, and then of course the New Testament read about the person who has just a faith the size of a mustard seed has, has the faith to move mountains. So it's, it's um, you know, the mountain's gonna be flattened and it might seem like an impossible project to Zerubbabel, but it's not by his might nor by his power, but this endless supply of power by the Holy Spirit through Zerubbabel. And that's the image of the power coming from the trees, olive oils going through the little pipes into the uh, the lamps, uh, constantly keeping things burning. It's kind of a cool image there. Um, 
By the way, uh, I always find it interesting whenever we're dealing with building issues here at Athe Creek, we bump into building project Bible uh, uh, passages, you know, and it, it's funny because, you know, here we are, you know, we built half of the building here um, and uh, we've been sitting here for, you know, six years now, enjoying our half a building. And, uh, and meanwhile, we're, uh, we're overflowing out of our half a building. And, and, um, and, and we're, now we're reading over and over as rebel, come on, get going, build the building, build the building. And we're like, okay, Lord, we, we hear, we're hearing you. But, but it seems like a mountain. Like if you were you know, on our leadership team watching what's going on, you know, it's a, a financial mountain, it's a, a building codes mountain, uh, traffic studies mountain. Uh, if you only knew how that much of a mountain it is, uh, you know, it's a neighborhood mountain. Uh, you know, the neighborhood's not always up for, you know, expansion of anything in the Stafford Hamlet area. Have you ever wondered uh, why um, uh, this is church central around here? There's an interesting thing about the state of Oregon, and I, I believe it's unconstitutional, but I'm a pastor, so nobody will ever listen to me on this one. But, um, but as it turns out, Oregon doesn't have a zone for churches. You can build whatever you want, anywhere you want in Oregon. Like if you wanna build a you know, Safeway, you can go to a zone that's got a zone for you know, uh, supermarkets. Uh, and there's zones for stuff. Like if you wanna build even horrible things, like a strip club, there's zones where you can build a strip club. club. Um, and Portland has a lot of those. Uh, more than most uh, cities in America, uh, America I'm told. Um, and, and this is the problem. But as it turns out, if you wanna build a church in Oregon, there's no, if you roll a map out in front of the county and say, show us where we can build a church, the answer is there are no zones for churches. That's the way Oregon handles it. So a church like ours, what do you have to do? A very expensive and very difficult challenge of going through a conditional use process, which is very expensive. Um, and there's a lot of things that are conditional use. I mean, I'm not saying churches are the only ones who have to get conditional uses and stuff, but, but it, it's, it's funny. Here's a nonprofit situation where, you know, the church, um, you know, is trying to just build a place to, to where we can meet. And uh, as it turns out, uh, you have to go through very, very tough processes. Uh, and and that, that's, that, that to me looks a little bit like a mountain. But good news, the Lord is able to move mountains, and he has. Uh, he's moved mountains in our past, and we're gonna see him move mountains uh, in our future. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So keep that in prayer, though, uh, uh, and uh, we're just gonna hang on for the ride like old Zerubbabel here who said, I don't know, man. Uh, and he waited 16 years. We're only on six years right now, so... <clears throat> Hopefully, uh, but I, we do feel like the Lord's stirring something, whether it's to build our building, uh, get her done, or maybe he's got something else. Uh, who knows what else, what else the Lord has. Uh, we're just praying, Lord, show us what to do, where to go. And that's what we're kind of doing right now. But all that to say, um, this vision number five, um, what an amazing uh, thing. Jesus, um, Jesus said this in Matthew 17. He said, um, because you're of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith the size of the grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence, go yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. So um, this is almost like the word that Jesus is giving, maybe to us, is the same word that the Holy Spirit's giving through Zechariah uh, to Zerubbabel to get back to building. Um, so this vision five, the, candles, the olive trees and the candlestick, it's all about that. Um, verse seven, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. And when they bring the stones and start stacking them and building the temple, what is he gonna shout to the stones? Grace. Why would Zerubbabel shout grace um, to the cornerstone or the headstone 
when he finally gets that set? Um, the answer is because it's God's grace. Any good thing happens. Uh, if anything good happens in your life or you see the work starting to be complete, completed, you have to understand that's God's grace. His grace, his grace, his grace. I love this passage. And um, maybe uh, we need to start doing that a little more. When we see great feats done that we thought could never happen, instead of going, look what I have done, just say, grace. When you drive up to your house at night, you're like, I live in a pretty nice house, grace. Uh, shout grace at it. Uh, your neighbors will think you're really weird. Uh, but, uh, but you know that, that that house, it's God's grace. What is grace? Undeserved, unearned favor God's shown you. Yeah, that's the only reason we have any good thing. Uh, we need to shout grace when we see the accomplishment of good things. So verse nine says, the hands of Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of this house. He'd already done the, the foundation. Now he's got, that was 16 years ago. Um, and, and, and then I love the declaration of this, uh, this messenger, the angel. He says, and he will finish it. He's gonna finish it. I love that. What a good word there in verse nine. That um, I wonder if that gave him more confidence that he would actually that his hands, not some other dude would finish it. Zerubbabel himself, he's gonna be the one to finish it. You might feel incomplete or like you've started things but haven't finished them. But all these Old Testament stories go back to New Testament truths. Philippians 1.6, for example, being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. You know, I love this, Jesus Christ. So. So in a sense, you're, you're getting this letter uh, from the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, dear Zerubbabel, get going. <laughs> you know, let's, let's get things started. Uh, and you gotta, are you good at starting stuff and not completing them? And maybe the Lord would just stir your heart tonight with something the Lord start, had you start, but you didn't finish. I wonder if some of you might be, this is a word for you specifically to get her done. Uh, just like poor Zerubbabel is getting this. And you, what happens when that mountain comes, you know, opposition or mixed reactions to what you're trying to do, um, realize the Lord is able to move mountains and the spirit of God will give you power to get that done that he's called you to do. Don't be, don't be afraid to finish the work God's called you to do. Well, <clears throat> all that to say, um, so we've got this amazing vision, the olive trees and the candlestick. Um, but, um, but one more word from the Lord, uh, he goes on and says in verse 10, for who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the earth. Um, what's this all about the small things? Uh, who, who shall despise, who hath despised the day of the small things. What an interesting phrase. Um, this, this is the Lord sort of zeroing in on the problem. What, what's the problem? We know a bunch of the problems from Haggai and from other parts of Zechariah that, do you remember, what, what was the mindset of the people about building the temple? They were preoccupied with something else. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, building their own houses. They were all about building their own houses. Um, and, and, and then to go and start working on the temple, ah, man, so much work and their backs were hurting and they were kind of tired of building because they'd been building their own house. And, and so it seemed like chipping away at the temple, it just seemed like a small thing. And um, it reminds me of a story, uh, some, they were building St. Peter's um, uh, chapel in, uh, in, where was that at? It was in London. Uh, St. Peter's uh, they were building, which is a beautiful uh, uh, you know, church there in London. 
But I guess the story goes that one guy, a newspaper guy was walking up and writing about the building of St. Peter's and, and, um, and uh, everybody was all, you know, working hard. And one guy, you know, he walked up to one guy, what are you doing? I'm digging a ditch. Uh, oh, okay. Just started writing the newspaper person and went over, uh, who are you? I'm the foreman. And what are you doing? I'm, I'm, you know, directing these guys. And just a bunch of gruff construction guys. But he saw another guy who was loading bricks into a wheelbarrow and, you know, and he was whistling a happy tune and walking around and just working hard. And, and, he, and the, the, the newspaper guy walked up to him and said, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a beautiful cathedral. It's all about your perspective. Uh, digging a ditch or, see, that's the problem. It was the small things like, ah, I'm digging a ditch and whatever. But it's almost like the Lord is saying, you gotta kind of get the bigger picture in mind here, Zerubbabel. When he's saying, for who hath despised the day of small things, for they shall rejoice and see the plummet. That's the plumb bob, you know. They'll, get, they'll start working and they'll see the walls going up is the idea here. Um, and do you remember this seven eyes thing? We're, we read that in chapter three, if you recall, there in verse nine. Uh, chapter three, verse nine. <clears throat> for behold, the stone that I have laid there before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof. We talked about the seven eyes of the Lord and we referred to Revelation, book of Revelation that talks about that in chapter uh, five, verse six, the seven eyes, which speaks of insight, uh, completeness and perfection, seven, number seven, but the eyes speak of insight, wisdom, and understanding also um, uh, what we would say omniscience of the Lord. He knows all things. That's what the seven eyes thing is about, the all-knowing nature of God. Um, what is God seeing with his seven eyes? Zerubbabel's tendency to despise the small things. Um, but you gotta get into the small stuff to start start seeing the big stuff. Who has despised the day of the small things? I'll tell you who has, we have. Sometimes, you know, there's people that just don't wanna be part of the smaller part of the answer to the greater solution. And, and that's always a, a bummer. You don't see a lot of great things happen. One of the things we've seen in the last couple of years here at Athey Creek that's so encouraging and fun is all the people who have said, we're gonna focus on some of those small things at Athey Creek. Um, you know, and it's so cool because how many people are blessed by those small things? Um, you know, like I've mentioned before, we have 1,700 volunteers who make Athey Creek go. Um, whether they're out in the parking lot or children's ministry or the coffee or cleaning up, maintenance crew. And, uh, you know, like there, there's, there's technicians with cameras and sound and lighting and words on the screens and stuff. Volunteers everywhere. And um, making stuff happen, our, our security team. Like it's an amazing long list of people. And somebody might say, well, that's just a tiny thing to do in the church. But all those small things are what has allowed Athey Creek, I'm just gonna say for us to see the grace of God just pour out his spirit in a way that we've just kind of never seen before. People getting saved every weekend, baptized. Like what the Lord's doing with tons of people doing a ton of stuff um, all of those small parts are, are working to do something that we're just kind of in awe of saying, wow, look what the Lord is actually doing. And we get to be a small part of that, all of us. And it's been such a kind of a cool thing. And um, I wonder if sometimes there might be the problem where if no one's willing to do the small things, then the Lord says, well, okay, if you're not willing to do the small things, I'm not gonna be able to do um, the great things. And uh, I, I worry that that could happen. And God forbid that, that, that you know, ends up happening to us or anyone for that matter. Um, quit despising the small things, the Lord is saying to Israel. Uh, the Jews thought 
they were doing, what they were doing was small and not important. That is the building of the temple. Um, now, I can, I can see why they thought that. Uh, let me just defend them just for a second. Not that I want to, but I will defend them just for a second. Because remember, these guys are rebuilding the Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem, all with um, less, lesser materials, um, with uh, threats all around them. Everything was lesser. And remember when they were building, the, they built the foundation of the temple and the old men were weeping. And they were saying, it's not like the old temple. <clears throat> they looked at it as junk. Um, I brought a video from, uh, so, um, you know, if you zoom in on Israel here, um, I wanna show you some stuff. This is kind of fun um, from our trips to Israel. Get right to Jerusalem. Um, the gray area, you can kind of see the outline of the main area of Jerusalem. As you zoom in, this is the old Jerusalem right here during the time of, of Hezekiah. Uh, pardon me, um, not Hezekiah, Zechariah. And this, this line here, um, you can, now these, these are modern walls right here, modern walls. But when you're walking in old Jerusalem, you come to this pit and you think it's just a dump or you think it's just a, like a place that nothing happens. This, the reason they dug this hole and left it like this, this is Nehemiah's wall right here. This is what's left of it. Uh, now, see how tiny the stones are? It's like, it's like it, you say, brother, it looks like somebody piled some shale and made a wall. Yeah, it, it, this is somewhat fallen down, but at the end of it, you can kind of see where, where uh, Hezekiah's wall, uh, Nehemiah's wall, I should say, you can still see some of the structure of it, but it was very small stones. They used the rubble from the destroyed Jerusalem from 586 BC. They used the rubble from that to build the wall around Jerusalem. They literally used the garbage to build the wall. And that's why the wall seemed lesser, but the same notion was with the temple. Now, let me, let me go, I'm gonna show you some other things here. Um, if you go in Jerusalem, you know where the Wailing Wall is? You've seen pictures of the Jews there by the Western Wall. You can go into the rabbi's tunnel, and we do this uh, oftentimes in the evening time, and you, you go down into these t caves. And the reason you have to kind of go down in these tubes and caves and stuff is the, the Western Wall, if you just got a sho shovel and started digging next to the Western Wall, you could dig for another 60 feet and you'd still be up against the wall, even though it's covered with dirt. And that's from thousands of years, um, you know, over 3,000 years in some case of uh, countries crushing Jerusalem, uh, earthquakes, uh, dust blowing, uh, dirt. You know, it's, it's, it's what happens with ancient cities. We don't have that in Oregon uh, because we've only been around for only a few hundred years. Um, but, but when you talk about over 3,000 years, civilization built upon civilization, the, the wall of Jerusalem goes way down. The reason this is kind of fun is when you go down into these tunnels, you can see they, they dug down to some of the ancient parts of the wall, even the Solomon era of those walls. And it's hard to even get your mind around this. So that's why I'm describing it for you. But um, so uh, last time we were there, we took some video footage of this and you go down these, these, these stones here are all Turk, Ottoman Turk era. Um, you know, it's only 500 years old, very modern uh, there, these, these stones. But as you get deeper and deeper, you leave this Ottoman Turk era and the Ottomans are all irregular shape stones. Then you get to some of these stones like this one here. This is Steve, our tour guide. And, um, and this, this stone right there, I wish I could almost pause it right there. That stone with those little holes, that's a Solomon era stone. Uh, some of those stones are the size of a school bus. Um, and they're just huge hewn stones 
The, see, these guys, the, the women go down into these tunnels and they stuff their prayers just like they do in the Western Wall because this is the Western Wall. It's just below the earth down in this tunnel and you walk way down to the end of this and you get, some of these are Herodian stones. Um, there's the time of Herod the Great, um, but, but some of the stones are actually Solomon. And people will drop their prayers down these shafts uh, because they want their prayers to be left by where the temple used to sit in Jerusalem. And that's why they do that there in Jerusalem. Um, the reason I show you this video is because, you know, um, the times of, of Zerubbabel, Zechariah, Haggai, Joshua, the high priest, um, they were thinking, what we're doing is small, man. It's nothing like Solomon's era. Just a bunch of trash stones that we're trying to fit together and make a temple. Um, but you remember, the prophet said, but the, the greatness or the glory of the Lord will be greater in this temple than it will be of the former. And we learned that's because Jesus would go into Zerubbabel's temple. It's a great story. And it's, it's, it's a lesson that all the small things that we blow off because we see them as insignificant. Well, as it turns out, the Lord says, I, I care about that stuff. I love Matthew 25. It says, his Lord said to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant, for thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. So first, be faithful in the small things. That, that's what the Lord is saying here uh, through this book to us. But he's also cracking the whip a little bit with old uh, Zerubbabel to build the, the temple. Be faithful in the small things. Um, I wonder, you know, uh, I mentioned last week that guy years ago that came up, Brett, I feel that the Lord has called me to teach the Bible. I said, great. And he said, and, and you're supposed to resign and I'm supposed to do Wednesday night Bible study. I said, not great. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it's funny because um, that guy was a little crazy, I have to say, sad to say, uh, mentally ill, I think. Um, but um, but I, I do think there's a thing where we wanna do great things. We wanna be influencers and we wanna have, you know, uh, engagement and followers and all this stuff. But um, sometimes the Lord wants us to small, start small. Um, you know, maybe in a, a class of three-year-olds teaching there instead of a Wednesday night Bible study. Maybe the Lord wants you to start with a class of three-year-olds. And then, you know, maybe you'll graduate. That's what I did. I started with three-year-olds, went to first graders. Uh, then I went to sixth graders, taught sixth graders for about 13 years. Um, and then I graduated to, well, I, I actually taught, uh, yeah, during that whole time I was teaching sixth graders, but I also graduated then to high school, junior high, college. And uh, for a while I was a director of college down through the babies. For years I was that at a large church. And then, um, and then when I turned 30, the Lord called me to uh, start a church up here in Portland. And like I told you last week, we had uh, you know, 20 people and then it split to, in half. We had a church split the first week, got down to 10. Uh, but that was, that was my beginning. I didn't start with a Wednesday night Bible study you know, with tons of people and stuff. I think sometimes the Lord wants us to be faithful in the small things. And man, if I had a dime for every time I was in a, a little preschool class teaching um, and the, the kid's breath filling the room. If you've, ever, if you've ever had that smell, you know that smell. Um, some of our lovely people are doing that right now downstairs. They're in, in, inhaling the kid's breath, uh, those classrooms. Um, and that's, that's an anointing that takes to do that. Um, but that's also a training ground. And I think if, if we're faithful in the small things, then the Lord is gonna uh, give us greater things to do. So don't, don't despise the small things. Um, that's kind of the idea. Well, uh, all that to say, um, this vision uh, of, uh, it's not over really yet because we talk about the eyes seeing him despising the small things. 
But verse 11 uh, through 13 says this, then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches which um, through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Now, again, he's, he doesn't have a clue. Zachariah would be aware of the candlestick. He'd be aware that they need oil to burn, but he'd never seen this little invention uh, of the continual supply. Um, uh, and you know, the, in the Hebrew language here, it's a little hard in the English, honestly, but if you read it in the original Hebrew, uh, there's seven golden pipes to each seven branch of the lampstand. Um, and the idea is there's 49 totals of golden straws going in here. Can you picture that? They're like golden straws, uh, I was what I'm gonna call them. Um, and all the turtles are gonna die because of the straws. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, can you guys, I, I just can't handle these paper straws. Like, you know, you, you try to drink and they just disintegrate. You're like trying to, uh, anyway, let the turtles die. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, no, I'm kidding. Total joke, I love turtles. I like turtles. Um, but these are seven golden pipes to each of the seven. There's 49 straws, uh, as it turns out. Um, and the implication about the, the numbers of this is there's more where that came from is the idea. You know, abundance of oil, never ending, and it's coming from these trees. Um, and, and it's just there for, for, you know, just to keep that lamp burning. It reminds me of the Holy Spirit when Jesus said, if you then being evil in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, um, to, you know, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Um, there's an unending flow of the spirit for those who are willing to ask and waiting on the spirit. Um, and, and being filled with the spirit is part of your Christian walk. Um, don't, don't be God's chosen frozen and just say, I, well, I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, uh, that he rose from the grave. That's, that's huge and that's important. That's how you're saved. But once you are saved, um, one of the things you, know, you're, you and I get to do is ask, like this says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask? Well, Brett, why would I ask for the Holy Ghost? Because see, some people think, well, when you became a Christian, then the Spirit was in you. And I would say, yes, that's true. Then why would we ask? It's the three prepositions of the Bible around the Holy Spirit. The first preposition, remember, the Holy Spirit is what? Anybody? With you. Before you were even saved, the Holy Spirit was with you, tapping you on the shoulder. And the Bible says, my spirit will not always strive with man. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit then is in you. And Jesus said that. The Holy Spirit is in you, but um, he's with you and he shall be in you. And that happened when, remember, Jesus breathed on them in John 20 and they received the Holy Spirit in them. John 20, but then Jesus said, now go up to Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit for he will come, what, anybody? Upon you. See, there's these, these three prepositions are huge. The first one is he's with you before you were saved, tapping you on the shoulder saying, you need to be saved. That was the Holy Spirit doing that. When you accepted Christ, the Spirit was in you. Um, and man, you're saved, you're going to heaven and the Spirit of God is in you. But to come upon you, that's what we were talking about. Remember Samson and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and what happened? some powerful feat of strength. We talked about that on Sunday. And that's why the disciples in Acts chapter one, Jesus told them in verse eight, he says, but you shall receive power. <clears throat> After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you 
and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. <clears throat> the coming upon of the Holy Spirit was gonna happen in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, and that was the dunamis. The dunamis? Well, the word power there, Greek word, love the Greek word there, the word is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. It means powerful, mighty work, miracle. It's the root for, word for what we have defined as dynamite. Um, so when you are a Christian, you can tap into the dunamis, boom, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so Brett, are you a charismaniac? Nope, I'm a, I am a charismatic. The charismaniac kind of lets the Holy Spirit do whatever they want and flops on the floor and swings from the chandeliers, does stuff that's not even in the Bible, makes stuff up, that's the charismaniac. The charismatic, in the best sense of the word, is someone who believes what the Bible says, and that is that the manifesting of the Holy Spirit can work in and through his church, and he does. And, and, um, and I, I just would say I'm a charismatic with a safety belt. The safety belt is the word of God. Um, and that's the problem. A lot of charismatic or you know, Pentecostals have freaked a lot of people out saying that's too weird. And that's too bad because the Holy Spirit is not weird. It's funny, if you go to some of these Pentecostal churches, you know, what kind of bird do you think the Holy Spirit is pictured by? You know, well, we say a dove. That's what the Bible says. I like doves. Um, but you'd think the Holy Spirit was like a screeching, like, yeah! or like, like you go to these churches, it's like, ah, yeah, that's a little scary. Or chicken, like, 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 it's just a little weird. You know, you're like, the Holy Spirit is weird. And some of you grew up thinking the Holy Spirit is weird. Um, but that's sad um, because the Holy Spirit is not weird. He, um, the Holy Spirit is a comforter, is offers wisdom and empowers us. And, and um, you know, 1 Corinthians 12's uh, list there is the manifestations of what the Holy Spirit can do through and in his church and through his people. Um, uh, by the way, um, people say, well, so Brett, you believe in healing and speaking in tongues and all that stuff? Yes, but here's the thing. When you see the Spirit move in my experience, and, I, and I'm thankful for this, but when you see the Spirit move, it's supernatural, but it's also very supernaturally natural. You don't have to try to you know, buzz up a bunch of energy or emotion. You don't have to try to whoop up a bunch of uh, you know, hyper hysteria. You don't have to have music playing of a certain level or style that makes the Holy Spirit glitter fall from the ceiling and all that stuff. That's just crazy stuff. But as it turns out, the Holy Spirit is supernaturally natural. And I think that's what we're looking for. Um, that's, that's the problem is a lot of the church has thrown the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's like, oh, the Holy Ghost, that's weird. People flopping in the house. So they're called cessationists. They believe that the, that the Holy Spirit has ceased from, you know, the First Corinthians 14, Acts chapter two, the filling of the Holy Church uh, Spirit on the church. Uh, they say that's not for today. Uh, how convenient it is to say that. And I, I have to admit, I'm kind of with them in the sense that the church has abused what the Holy Spirit seems to be doing. And they, they actually make stuff up to make it look more crazy than it really is. Um, what the church needs to do is be open to the power of the Holy Spirit, but not make it weird uh, and do stu stupid stuff. Um, be careful on that one. Be careful on two sides. First, don't throw the Holy Spirit out because you think it's weird. Um, do not quench the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a second. But also, um, while you don't wanna quench it, you also don't wanna look for ways to be a weirdo and say, well, the Holy Spirit, come on. Like, uh, you know, does the Holy Spirit, uh, like, like some people, there's churches, well, they'll jump up right in the middle of the Bible teaching, like right now, and they'll jump up and just start speaking in tongues. Um, and what's their claim there? Their claim is, well, I just couldn't help it, man. Right, the Holy Spirit, come on, man, the power. 
they're usually those kind of people who say that. But here's the problem, oh, hyper one. When it talks about speaking in tongues in the church, 1 Corinthians 14 makes it really clear that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. The Holy Spirit will never make you do something, first of all, uh, that you just can't control yourself. If somebody says, well, the Holy Spirit made me do it, uh, I was out of my control, that wasn't the Holy Spirit, that was just you being a weirdo. Or maybe a devil. Uh, there's things in the Bible where demons actually did things like that, if you remember. Um, but also um, uh, there, it says in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, that speaking words of understanding are more important than speaking words of tongues. So there's a priority and a precedent. So teaching the Bible, like what we're doing right now, should not be interrupted by a speaking word of tongues because 1 Corinthians 14 says very clearly, speaking clearly that we can understand is way better. And then it, it ends that whole chapter, it says, let all things be done decently and in order. Um, the uh, Pentecostals, yeah, let all things be done. But the Baptists are all like, yep, decently in order. Um, but the Bapticostals, like me, would say, we need to do both. We need to, we need to uh, do all things decently and in order, but at the same time, let all things that the Bible tells us to do, let all those things be done. That's important. By the way, uh, if you're interested in the Holy Spirit and the asking of the power of the Holy Spirit, um, I did a whole series on this years and years ago. I should redo this because it's only about 20 years old now, um, but it's still on our website. Um, I did like a seven part series on the Holy Spirit on Sunday evenings during Sunday night worship. I did a short little 20 minute teachings and I think they're kind of important on your, you know, just have the, the, the fresh filling, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit. So you say, okay, Brett, um, Got it, but what's the deal with this? Um, you know, who are these? Um, you know, the, 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 what, what are these trees? Uh, you know, Zachariah says, and then, and then he gives us sort of the answer there in verse 14, and we'll end here. It says, and then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Huh? Remember the question, um, the question was, what be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes um, empty the golden oil out of themselves? Um, and his answer is shocking, because you and I might say the olive tree, well, maybe that's Israel, or maybe it's, uh, you know, just the Holy Spirit, a source of the Holy Spirit. Like, like you kind of, so far I'm tracking, and then all of a sudden the answer is, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord for the whole earth. Hmm, who are they? Well, there's three main opinions and maybe all of them are true. Um, but uh, I'll give you the three opinions and, uh, and then we'll wrap it up for the evening. First of all, the first, um, who, uh, you know, the, who, who in, this, in this olive tree part of this vision, who are the olive trees? The two olive trees represent um, uh, the, the, two, the two anointed ones. Um, what are they? Well, the first one is more symbolical. Um, we, we might just say, and this would be my natural, this is my knee jerk, kind of as I read the Bible, I kind of, well, that's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We've got the two parts of the Holy Trinity that sort of, this, this seems right to me. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is a major part of this, but Jesus is the one who connects us and reconciles us to the Lord. And, and I see that. So you have Jesus, the vine, the, the branch, we are the branches. And Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. You got Jesus at the right hand and the Holy Spirit, maybe at the left, if you would. Uh, so some scholars say it symbolically represents Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the two anointed ones. 
Option two, historically, some would say, no, it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. If you recall, chapter three was addressed to Joshua, prepping him, and chapter four was addressed to uh, Zerubbabel, referencing him and cracking the whip for both of these guys. Come on, guys, let's get the temple built. And, and there are some that say, these are the two anointed ones, and you'd say Zerubbabel and Joshua, anointed by the Holy Spirit. They have a continual flow of the Holy Spirit running through them to finish the work of the temple. And so they would say more in a historical way that Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, are the ones that are two, the two, two anointed ones. Then there's sort of a prophetic one uh, that others say, no, the two anointed ones being talked about are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Flip over there real quick. Go, to, go with me to Revelation 11. Told you we were almost done. I guess I, I was wrong. I, I really am almost done. But Revelation chapter 11, um, this, this, this is um, uh, a reference of Israel and their future during the tribulation period. And there's two witnesses here uh, in Revelation 6 through 19, we have the tribulation, seven years. And the great tribulation is the last three and a half years, 1,260 days. Um, but there's these two witnesses that show up in Revelation um, chapter 11. It says in verse three, Revelation eleven three, And I will give power to my two witnesses. So these are two Holy Ghost empowered witnesses. And they shall prophesy and a thousand two hundred and three score or sixty days in sackcloth. And if any man will hurt them, uh, pardon me, verse, verse four. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. Did you see that? And you'll see a reference. See, when I first mentioned this, some people are like, okay, Brad, I was with you on the historical. Uh, I was with you, you know, on the, uh, you know, maybe being, you know, Joshua and Zerubbabel, but this whole two witnesses of the revelation, but here it says it kind of, right? It says, these are, and then you'll see the reference to Zechariah 4, verse three. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And verse five, uh, if any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouths. Boy, freedom of speech uh, is gonna change <laughs> during, <laughs> during the tribulation period. And they're gonna say things. And if people don't like this, and fire is gonna come out, um, that's gonna be amazing. Um, and devour their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Uh, so they're gonna be fried uh, by these two witnesses. Verse six, and these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So this is like, um, you know, but that's what Moses did, right? Moses brought the plagues of, of uh you know, water turning to blood and plagues like that. Verse seven, um, and th um, when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, which is the antichrist, that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. These two witnesses are gonna be killed. Guys with fire coming out of their mouth, they're gonna be killed by the beast. What a drama. And verse eight, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, um, where also the Lord was crucified. So that's Jerusalem. Verse nine, and they of the people and the kindreds of tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three, and a half, uh, three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. That's what they do in the Middle East. Uh, the, the, especially the Muslims, and they'll, they'll take their enemies' bodies and drag them through the streets and leave them out hanging so everybody can see and what have you. That's what's gonna happen to these guys. Um, and um, 
It says, verse 10, and they, will they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts. It'll be like Christmas time. Uh, when, when these guys uh, are killed, the world will be, oh good, those guys, fire-breathing dudes in Jerusalem are dead. You know, uh, let's, let's have Christmas. So they start giving gifts and celebrating their death um, and make merry. And, um, and two of the prophets, they, uh, uh, because they tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And then verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up on their feet and they said, we're back. No, I didn't. I, I'm sorry, I added that part. And great fear fell upon them, which saw them. Could you imagine this in the tribulation period? These dead bodies being laid in Jerusalem, hanging or whatever, and everybody's all happy and giving gifts Christmas time and suddenly it's Halloween. And they're all like, suddenly they're awake again and alive. Did you guys hear it last week? Did you see the article in the news? Um, they were doing this funeral. I don't know what part of the world. It looked like maybe somewhere in India. They were doing a funeral and they were lowering the coffin down. All of a sudden, the lady came to and she was like knocking on the, like, let me out of here. They, they quickly got the box back out and brought her to the hospital and she was resuscitated somehow. A um, <laughs> little bit of a scary moment. Uh, how many of you guys saw that news thing last week? Oh, wow, nobody watches the news. Um, uh, but anyway, all that to say, um, you know, the, the message of this chapter is, uh, you know, you say, okay, Brett, so what's the point here? The, the, you know, the, it ends with this idea of these two um, anointed ones. Um, and I'd say it could be any one of those, those three. The conditions that need to be met, by the way, uh, one thing I wanna end with, um, is the conditions that need to be met if, if you're gonna be filled with the Spirit. Really quickly, some things the Bible has to say. First of all, Ephesians 4, 20, uh, 30 says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of re redemption. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin against the, the Lord. Um, we, we have to be clean in God's sight to be used by the Spirit. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The second thing the Bible tells us, if you wanna be filled and used like Zerubbabel or Joshua the high priest you, um, and be filled with the Spirit, have the, the oil going in, if you would, you, you need to quench not the Spirit, uh, which is speaking of being in God's will and doing what God wants you to do. Not just sin, but actually being in his will. If God wants you in Africa and you're still here, then you're kind of not doing what God wants you. So don't, don't expect the Holy Spirit to be moving in your life. Or if you're in Africa and you're supposed to be at home, don't expect the Lord to move uh, by his spirit. So you need to be in line with his will and not quench the spirit. But then thirdly, you're supposed to walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says, you know, that walking in the spirit is a very practical sort of thing. Day by day, just walking in the power, depending on the Holy Spirit for everything we do. So the vision of the lampstands uh, and the olive trees here are an encouragement to the remnant in Zechariah's day to uh, get, to understand the Holy Spirit's gonna be upon them to do what God has called them to do. Um, now you might say, is there any more of what these two witnesses have to do with Zechariah? Yes, and it's quite interesting. And you say, well, when will we talk about that? Next Wednesday, we'll pick up this discussion. All right. Well, Lord, we are so thankful for this chapter, uh, chapter four, and pray that you'd fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be people who uh, not grieve your spirit, that we don't quench your spirit, and that we walk in your spirit, Lord, daily. Um, and uh, Lord, like this story, I pray that our lights would so shine before all men. So give us, Lord, just that practical application, Lord, of, of this, of your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.